From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about something that has been making news headlines for quite some time. And the latest update, the B.C. government cancelling the operation license of the trucking company involved in multiple highway overpass strikes since 2021. And this is the premier. He was talking about this, has talked about this on numerous occasions. One of the worst offenders has been this company, uh, Shohan, uh, and I understand they have hit six overpasses. The uh, astonishing part uh, is that the company thinks that they should be still able to operate. You might recall the girders that were smashed in the uh, overpass crash in Delta. That crash actually resulted in Shohan's fleet of trucks being suspended from operating in BC. The challenge then, uh, the company has then challenged the provincial suspension in court. The company calls the move unreasonable given that the independent contractor involved was fired. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Gagan Singh, the spokesperson for the United Truckers Association. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, as from from your point of view, and and uh, as a spokesperson with the United Truckers Association, what are your thoughts on the fact that the government, the BC government, has now cancelled the operation license of this company? Actually, uh, technically, the license was already cancelled uh, after the day of accident because their national safety code was taken away. So this is merely uh, some sort of uh, additional thing on. So I think since Johan Trucking was not operating after the accident and uh, on the basis of technicalities, this has to be has to be undergone. Like they have to lose the license because they already lost their national safety code. Okay, because there was some, that's where I think things got a little bit complicated was, as we know, Shohan Trucking or Shohan Freight Forwarders, they put out a statement earlier today, it was the Director of Safety and Compliance saying that they disagree with the action taken by the B.C. government. Uh, But also, uh, they said that to date we have cooperated fully with the Ministry of Transportation and Commercial Vehicle Safety and Enforcement as part of their investigation. And they had said earlier that the move was unreasonable given that it was the independent contractor involved that was fired. But is it still all the same company? Yes, it is. You're right. So what does that mean then when the company was saying that they felt it was unreasonable to suspend their license because it was an independent contractor? Like the contractor have done by mistake by himself, but uh, but before we consider or before we talk, we need to go behind that for about the five previous accidents. So Chohan Trucking haven't made a proper uh, due diligence about how to move those bigger loads so that's their that's their own mistake. But since the matter is in the court, so honestly saying, with all due respect, I won't be able to comment about it because court have to make the decision. But from the province perspective, two years, same accidents happening, no proper due diligence. If we see like uh, if company have not done the proper due diligence, then ministry haven't done their part properly too. And how so? And I know that your organization, and we've talked about this before, has put out a call, put out a list of things that could be done to hopefully uh, increase or improve on safety. But when you talk about the due diligence, what specifically would you like to see there? 
especially I talked with someone in Alberta today morning, and they, they have told me in, in Calgary by itself, in Calgary downtown, there are six different sensors on the bridges on which they, they may feel that those bridges are not like their height is a bit lower than the other bridges. So if we see like what ministry have done about those kind of sensors, I used I I know that few years before there used to be a same sensor on the highway one of, uh, bef- between Abbotsford and Langley, and uh, those kinds of sensors are still missing. But that doesn't mean that if if there are not sen- not enough sensors on the bridges that that drivers can do the mistake. It's unacceptable at any cost. So what has changed, though, in your mind, given that so when we look at the, the number of crashes that the province says there have been 34 overpass or bridge strikes on major BC roads involving commercial vehicles since 2021, what changed in 2021 or why do you think we're seeing so many just in the past three years when we didn't hear about this many previously? Uh, the major part is the training aspect, because if you see the training, so there's lots of things happening. Lots of newcomers are coming into the industry, and majority of them are mostly on the work permits. So what's happening in the, in all, on the ground reality is that uh, it's a very bitter truth that uh, work permit holders are treated like slaves, because they... They know that the key to get their immigration is in the pocket of company, and they have to honor whatever the company says. So that's the biggest thing that no one is talking about that. Right. Clearly. I mean, shouldn't people be talking about that if that's what's happening here and that that's the, the, the driving issue behind this? Shouldn't that be front and center in the conversations about this? Yes, of course. We did talk with several drivers about the training aspect. We did talk about the many, many citizens here. So they are complaining about the companies because the problem is that if someone stands against the company or if someone is questioning about the company, companies treat them in such a way that by not giving them work for two weeks, three weeks, forcing them to stay at home. So that's the reason that no one is complaining about the companies and there's no no kind of due diligence that where they can complain about their company. And when you say if somebody is questioning them, would it even be something uh, questioning them of, I'm not going to drive that truck unless you can tell me exactly how high it is so I know what I'm getting into on the roads? Yes. There are many examples, even the truckers, like uh, you have heard in the past, past weeks that CBSE have bought a report uh, sorry, Burnaby RCMP have bought a report that 58% of the trucks, they didn't pass the in- inspections. Right. This is not a small number. So no. why those people are driving? Because there's no proper due diligence by the province. No one, there's no such kind of helpline. You can again provide me the helpline that if driver wants to report for a company, where they can report? So like a whistleblower type protection? Yes. Our association writing to the Minister of Transport, he's not responding timely. So just imagine what can be happening. We do represent more than 1,000 truckers, and we are being oftenly ignored on many aspects. Hmm. Uh, What a common layman can do in that. 
No, it's a it's a good question because I know I think it was the last time you were on this program. It was because we were talking about the recommendations you had put forward, things like putting the height both in meters and feet on overpasses, and a, and a list of other uh, things that could potentially improve safety. Have you heard anything back on any of those? Nothing. Nothing. We we write an email to minister to to get a personal meeting, but in the response we have got. Uh, email from the CVSC top top person that they are want to meet us. We are meeting them next week because due to my own personal things, I was un- unable to meet them. But the concern is that uh, we request them, like, how much does it cost to put on the height of the bridge in both metric and imperial? I, I don't think so. If they want to change on all of the bridges in the lower mainland, the cost wouldn't be more than 100000 A lot but less. What has been done is nothing. Yeah, uh, it would be a lot less than fixing an overpass after a truck smashes into it. Of course. This is a major concern. Well, Gagan, we will continue uh, to check back with you, and especially after uh, you meet with the CVSC. I'm very interested to see what comes of that. But thank you for joining us today and for your time. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. You have uh, certainly been talking a lot, many people have been talking a lot about crowding at Surrey schools and it has been going on for years. It wasn't too, too long ago. We were also talking about a list of ideas that was being talked about and ideas that were a little different but were meant to help ease that crowding. Well, the Surrey School Board is now taking a closer look at extending the days at some schools to do just that. We don't do it to save any money. Uh, as, as you highlighted, it's going to cost us money. But the thing is, it will save us a lot of money over portables, and we simply cannot afford to put any more portables in Surrey. So this is where we're at. I'm worried where we'll have to go next. I could see us going to more schools. I could see us having to look at other options that we looked at at a long-range facilities plan that are people will like even less than this. Uh, That was just part of the Surrey Surrey School Board meeting where uh, this decision was made. Looks like it's going to be extended at five high schools, but a lot of the details still have not been released. Well, Cindy Dalglish joins me now, a Surrey education advocate. And Surrey, great. uh, Cindy, great to have you back (laughs) on the show. Sorry, too many S words (laughs) there. (laughs) And it's Friday. (laughs) Cindy, thank you so much for being here. Uh, What are your thoughts on this route that the board is taking as far as expanding or extending the school day? Yeah, I I think it's the best of the worst ideas. Um, You know, there was a lot of options put out there that were completely, they were comical. Um, And so this is the one that is, that we've seen happen before when we're in the middle of building a new school and, you know, you have to move some students around in the meantime. Um, but they're not looking at this as a temporary measure. They're looking at this as a long-term uh, measure because we are not keeping up with uh, infrastructure in this city. <laughs> Schools is just one of them. But, uh, yeah, I don't – I'm starting to be at a loss for the lack of attention that – this province has on education in this, it, overall. 
I, I'm going back to, and I know that you have been an advocate for many, many years. And just when you talk about being at a loss, because I feel like your kids have grown up the entire time while we've been having this discussion and are probably going to graduate out of the school system while this discussion is still going on. You're, you're not incorrect. Actually, today is my daughter's 16th birthday. And uh, I started this when she was, I started advocating when she was seven so, uh, you know, she's got two years left in the school system before she's out and, and off to whatever happens next. Um, and it's infuriating because in all this time, I have seen one school that I advocated for uh, finally break ground. It's too long. It's too long to wait for for action. We, you know, finally the district and the ministry came out, uh, I think it was late last year, and talked about modular building modularly so that, you know, they could be more efficient in time, more cost effective. And yet it's a great idea, but yet here we are again, still nothing's happened. Like what is taking everything so long? We need schools. We need them now, not just two or three years from now, because in two or three years, we'll need that many more. We are seeing thousands of people come here every year needing access to school buildings. We are not doing that. And when you talk about the modular schools, and I know we've, we've discussed that, and in that, that clip that I just ran from the school board, the point was made that staggering the school day or making it so some students will be going later or different times, it's not going to save money, uh, as the, the, no. the school board member said. It's actually going to cost money. Uh, the modular schools, uh, from what I understand about them, they're much better than portables. Uh, they're more like a building, even though it's modular. So why do you think there has been the pushback, or is there not the space or why hasn't the the modular idea taken off sooner that's a great question i don't know the answer i i do know that we don't have much land available and so we need these modulars to be on land uh become a separate school we we don't want to just keep adding to the the schools that we have we need net new school land uh we cannot keep making our our schools bigger we need net new. And so I think that that becomes a bit of a barrier in in getting there. And then we have to still deal with all the bureaucracies of the, the province and the city to get things built and, you know, up to code and up to spec. And, you know, we have a project office in the Surrey School District that is supposed to make this faster. And I don't see faster happening. Um, and it's it's completely frustrating. So at this point, with the idea then to extend days at some of the high schools and to that would affect, to begin with, about five of the district's high schools, do we know anything more about this as far as which schools might be the ones or what the times might look like, those kind of details? I don't know that we have all the details yet, but I can, uh, you know, it, it's easy to look at which schools are the most overcrowded and where the most population increase is happening, and you can pretty much target those schools. Um, really, what what they're asking for, in my understanding, is that they're not asking to, you know, have kids go to school until 5 p.m. They're thinking about a half an hour before, half an hour after, or something like that. And I'm not sure that that's actually going to meet the needs. Really, it's maybe 10% of, of a help. When we really need like a fulsome look at this, we need, I think it is something like nine new schools in this district, and I'm sure that includes some high schools and elementary, nine new schools today. 
in order not to have as to, to basically stay at status quo, not to then look at future. Um, I, I, I keep going back to that loss, that feeling of loss, it, it, loss of words, because it does not seem to matter who's in government. It does not seem to matter who's in charge of anything. Nobody seems to be willing to make this such a pressing issue. And, and I would echo Terry Allen's statements from the board that it seems like nobody cares. Uh, my guest is Cindy Dalglish, a Surrey education advocate. And Cindy, so with what we do know, like you said, it's not uh, something drastic as far as some kids might go uh, in the morning. Other kids are going to go till seven o'clock at night. But but something you said as well that this was the 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 least kind of offensive or the least of the, the of, of all the options that were put out when when people took a look at the ideas that were put out as far as changes that might be made. Uh, I, I mean. A cynical person might think that some of the other options that have been floated were put there specifically because they were ridiculous. And at least now the argument can be made, well, this one's not so, so bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was probably one of those first cynical people. Is, is that I, it was, they were, some of the options were laughable and, um, and totally not feasible whatsoever. And I, I don't blame the district. They're, they're trying to they're trying to make a point here. Like we are that screwed in this district that we need some attention on this. We need to see that our minister understands all of the actual barriers that our our students are facing. And I I was talking to somebody else earlier today and they said something, but, Oh yeah, but our education, the education that they're receiving is still great. Uh, Yeah. That's the graduation rate. We're not talking about the social emotional piece, the the kids in the schools and the stresses that they're facing and and the staffing and and the stresses that our educators and staff are facing. We don't even have enough staff to to manage the capacity that we do have. So what is the plan? What is the minister's plan in funding education adequately today, not just because it's an election year? I don't want to hear about a plan. I want to see action today. I don't care anymore to hear about all the excuses, whose fault it is. I just want to see forward movement. Right, because does it still come down to, and this even was something, as I'm sure you know, that came to council being, well, the the numbers and the projection numbers don't look right. Council rejected that, and then they came yeah. up with a new a new proposal. But like you said, that doesn't really do anything for parents or students who just want to be able to have room to go to school. Yeah, I, I don't, like, there's lots of nuance to why the, the council did push back on those numbers. Um, but for years, we've been talking about the numbers that they project are never adequate. They're never accurate. You know, they'll talk about one development that is going to have, you know, a total of 1.3 students coming from a project that's got 100 townhouses. Absolutely ridiculous. We know darn well that townhouses or where families are raising children, there is no way that it's not at least 50% capacity of those townhouses that is going to have children in the schools. So they're not, they're not, they're looking at day one of a townhouse complex being built. They're not looking at all the kids that are going to come in because the, the people that moved in are now going to start having families or, you know, second owners and all of that. They're not looking at the long term. They're only doing what they can in a four year term. And it's really, really hitting 
hitting our students hard. Cindy, thank you once again for coming on the show and for talking more about this. We will continue following up, but I do really appreciate you making the time today. Thanks, Jill. Well, this is a story. I think it's actually the plot line of a television show, which is fiction, but this is not fiction. It is a story that is being reported. CNN had a lot of the details about this. A woman in Connecticut who unwittingly had intimate relations with her half-brother. This person was her high school boyfriend, but they had no idea they were related. It came to light after finding out that her mother had used a fertility doctor, but that doctor had done a few things, well, things that are questionable to say the least. Take a listen to just part of the story. HR 451. So this is the federal fertility fraud bill that is victim-led. For this group of advocates pushing for a federal law, can come to Canada. this day on Capitol Hill isn't just meetings, it's personal. I mean, I'll just put it out there. I mean, I, I was intimate with my half-brother. But you didn't know. We didn't know. Yeah. Victoria Hill is talking about her high school boyfriend. This, I think, was junior year. Obviously, you're dating here. Yeah. Victoria didn't learn the truth until decades later, when she took a commercially available DNA test and discovered dozens of half-siblings Victoria never knew existed, including her high school boyfriend. He texted me, and it was a screenshot of the 23andMe connection, and it said, you are my sister. Yeah, that was 39-year-old Victoria Hill speaking with CNN about that case and what she uncovered. Well, joining me now is Dean Hildebrand, BCIT forensic DNA expert, also the Dean for School, the School of Computing and Academic Studies. Dean, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. When when you hear about this story and some of the details, what goes through your mind? Well, these are really, I mean, they're jarring stories, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're still relatively unusual and uncommon, but they, they seem to be popping up more and more as people um, become more familiar with these and use these new technologies. Right. And, and as you heard in there, in that story, and just a small part of that story was this, that they, she only found out because of the DNA test kit. And uh, like you said, more and more people using these kits. And, and uh, we hear so many stories of people finding out perhaps that they have half siblings or relatives that they didn't know about. In this case, though, because of the activities or the alleged activities of the doctor, uh, a lot more sinister, uh, the findings. But so so, so with these DNA kits becoming more and more prevalent, prevalent, sorry, uh, are people finding out more that there is fertility fraud that's happening? Yes. I mean, this is one of, I think, the unintended consequences of these do-it-yourself DNA kits. I mean, um, the general public's really increasingly curious about their geographical, their biogeographical ancestry and their extended family connections, right? So they're they're voluntarily adding themselves to these these commercial DNA databases like 23andMe and Ancestry.com like to innocently discover more about themselves. And, of course, this is one of the unintended consequences of doing that. In this case as well, so this is a case where the test revealed that her biological father was her mother's 
fertility doctor. And the allegation is that he used his own sperm without consent, unclear how many times. Uh, that's only one one potential type of fertility fraud, though, isn't it? In that it could be any any number of things in, in as far as the types of fraud. What else could potentially uh, we be hearing about now? Well, I mean, I'm, this fraud can cover a lot of different different um, aspects. Like in any business, you can be defrauded in a number of ways. But of course, we we know about those types of fraud. It's really this unique uh, twist on fraud. Now, fertility fraud, you know, where it's the failure of the fertility doctor to obtain the proper consent of a patient before you know, inseminating them with their with his sperm. Um, and this is the one that's really been catching catching our eyes is because we we don't have the the legal frameworks to deal with this type of fraud like we have in other types of more quote-unquote standard fraud and is it also that the type of fraud that perhaps it is being uncovered more because of these dna test kits and more and more people doing them but without those those kits how else would you be uncovered oh it'd be really hard to uncover this like there are there are cases that are probably going back decades and decades where doctors would do this. And without you doing a DNA test, I mean, uh, it would be very hard to uncover. And I mean, we've been doing DNA tests, like paternity type tests for, for, for decades now, but it would be these one-off types of tests. It'd be really hard to uncover. But now when you're, you're adding your DNA to these massive databases and you get connected to these databases, to these companies, it's much, much easier to, to, to find these instances now. Because I, I was trying to think about this too, that even if we go back before these test kits became so popular, if somebody did go to a fertility doctor or went to, uh, say, a sperm bank and, and to, to become pregnant that way, is there something that links and says, even though it's, it's anonymous, is there something that links and says, okay, this is blood type, this is something that, that is a marker that shows, yes, this is, this is the donor you chose and this proves that it was the donor, or could there be fraud? there as well well i'm sure there could be fraud there as well and and uh, i'm sure this happened before we had this genetic genealogy capacity if if a couple was unsure of of the uh of their child they would just do a standard paternity test right which we've had for a long long time so it'd be really easy to uncover um any any kind of any kind of issue but then of course connecting it to the doctor um would still be another issue that they still have to face that challenge today is is the standard paternity test is that much different than a DNA test? I mean, DNA test is um, like even with this, when they're uncovering these linkages to doctors, they will at some point start to do these standard paternity tests to to compare your know, children to to their parents. So um, yeah, they would still be using standard techniques, but it's this it's these companies that are. Um, um, daylighting these a couple is that okay there's something wrong here so we should get a we should check this with a standard paternity test and does it open up to a, another conversation as well in and I think this story of, of the woman in Connecticut shows the potential harms. I mean, obviously now she's going through this and, and learning this very disturbing information, but doesn't it also open it up to, to genetic disorders and such if people are, are having children, are, 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 are having intimate relations with close relatives unknowingly? 
Yeah, that is an issue. I mean, what the, the way this technology works is that like the new technology has allowed us to sequence large swaths of the human genome. So we can collect a lot more information on your specific genome, for example, and it's readily available. It's become inexpensive. And when we align our, our DNA sequences, for example, with the half sibling, we see a, a good 25% of it of their genome is the same. And that's how we, we identify them in, in cases like this as being half siblings. And that's an issue. Obviously, when you share more of your genome with somebody, you're more likely, and then you have children, for example, with them, you're more likely to have uh, potential genetic disorders of children as a result. I'm, I'm interested in, in that number as well that you brought up. So 25% or of, of sharing shows that it's a half-sibling. Does that vary as far as, or, or I guess to back it up a little bit, how do you know what is the marker or what is the test result that shows experts that, that, that two people are half-siblings? Yeah, so that's exactly it. So they, they will, for example, they'll sequence your DNA, they'll sequence someone else's DNA, um, and then they line it up. And through complex algorithms and computers, they see how what percentage of it is basically the same. And if, for example, you had a, a, a an identical twin, it would be essentially 100% the same. And if you had a full sibling, it would be 50% the same. And then a half sibling, it would drop down to about 25%. And that's how they do these. And then cousins would have even less, and second cousins. So it's, it, on that s and that essence, it's quite simple. They're just looking for a percentage of identical genomes between people. Hmm. And is that how they do the testing for, for people that do this so just because they're, they're interested in their family history? When, and when people get the results back going, oh, you're, you're uh, this percentage uh, Iberian Peninsula, this percentage Scottish or, or whatnot, does, does it go that's because of the, the amount, the percentage matches? It's similar, yeah. They're looking for clusters. So and they have a database of people that are known to come from a certain, say, Europe, geographical area. And then they say sequence you and you see that your, your uh, sequences align most closely with that cluster in the database. And that, so that's how they link you to a geographical area. This is a story, this latest story is out of the United States. Do we have different rules in Canada or do you think, is it a concern as more and more people do these tests around the world that, that, that or is it a concern or something that we need to be paying more attention to? Yeah, and I'm not a lawyer and a lawyer could probably give you a, a better insight into the legal aspect of it. But it's my understanding, yeah, that we are playing catch up on this front because it's so new. And I think that's the case in any new technology. It, it outpaces society's ability to, to deal with the ethical concerns and the legal concerns. And this is just another example of that. Um, people are seeking civil remedies because of issues like this. But I think it's, it's difficult to charge doctors uh, at the moment um, based, because of the legal frameworks we have. And will the technology continue to, to change, given that uh, I, I know it's changed so much, even if we go back a few decades? Are we at the point where we've kind of figured it out, or is there still more when it comes to, to forensic DNA and DNA testing that, to, that you think we'll be able to, to uncover or, or that we still have yet to discover? Um, this is why, um, you know, at BCIT, we love this technology. It's... Um, Within the forensics department, it's always challenging to keep up with uh, the latest technologies. But, um, you know, we're teaching the next generation of forensic scientists about this, and we've managed to so far keep up and integrate it into, into programs. And, uh, but it is fast-changing and, uh, and difficult to do. But 
uh, it's a really interesting interesting place place to work, but you've got to keep up with the technologies. Sounds like it, for sure. Uh, Dean Hildebrand, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.